Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You can also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode on Sasha Baron Cohen's latest political provocation, Borat subsequent movie film, and we have one of the works about this season of the FX series Fargo. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. Uh, Genevieve Kosky could not join us this week. I think she got caught up in some, uh, uh, maybe it was some bad weather. We'll say that. This week, we're putting on our beigeous wide-lapeled shirts and gauchos, braving the inclement weather, and heading out to test our marriages with a key party. I hear they're all the rage these days. Scott, I think... Everything you just said is wrong. Key parties are not all the rage these days. They're a relic of California's swinger culture from like 50 years ago. Well, it takes a long time for trends to reach the Midwest. Plus, trends are cyclical, which is why I've held on to this polyester disco vest all these years. Uh, I can't speak for Tasha, but I'm happy in my marriage. I don't think dropping my car keys in a bowl in order to hook up with a random stranger is worth needlessly sabotaging my relationship with my wife. I just, I just don't. You're also understating the weather situation here. The forecast is calling for one of the nastiest meteorological metaphors on record. We're not just risking our lives driving in this weather. We're risking a full-blown existential crisis. Real dark night of the soul implications here. Uh, Plus, we're setting a terrible example for our listeners. We've been doing quarantine pairing since March, and now coronavirus infections are spiking worse than ever before. Going to a party that ends with a bunch of people sleeping with each other sounds like a White House-level super spreader event. (sighs) She's fine. Okay. I guess we'll just have to stay inside, huddle up in a blanket, and watch some movies instead. Tasha, what's on tap this week? After a near-decade-long break from his first feature, Martha Marcy May Marlene, writer-director Sean Durkin is back with The Nest, a chilly new drama about a marriage on the brink. Set in the 1980s, the film stars Jude Law as a slick businessman who drags his wife, played by Carrie Coon, and their children from America to England, but the change in location only deepens the rift between them. The relationship between the time period and the dysfunction within this family reminded us of Ang Lee's 1997 film The Ice Storm, about two families who bring the libertine values of the free love era into a suburban enclave of Connecticut in the 1970s. And so this week, we'll look at the adult betrayals and adolescent experimentation that lead to confusion and tragedy in the ice storm. Then next week, we'll bring in The Nest and look at how the values of the greed is good era affect another family in crisis. Please join us. It was 1973, and the climate was changing. Care to play? It's strictly volunteer, of course. A key party? The men put their car keys in a bowl, and at the end of the evening, the women line up and fish them out. How are the parental units functioning these days? Dad's doing his up-with-people routine. Is that good or bad? It's just you develop a sense if things are going to work out or if they won't. I have a husband. I don't particularly feel the need for another. Sometimes it's not worth the mess. 
From acclaimed director Ang Lee comes a portrait of an American family. Dear Lord, thank you for this Thanksgiving holiday and for letting us stuff ourselves like pigs, okay. even though children okay. in Asia are being napalmed. Okay. It's enough, all right. Paul, roll. They were growing up. Wendy, a person's body is his temple. And they were falling apart. I don't ever want to see you. Then why'd you come after me? Based on Rick Moody's novel, The Ice Storm is about the collision between a traditional, conservative understanding of the family unit and the counterculture experimentation that upends it. That description makes this film sound reactionary, as if the hippie movement arrived in New Canaan, Connecticut in 1973 and disrupted the otherwise stable relationships within typical American families. Yet The Ice Storm is about the hypocrisies of mixing and matching different value systems. It's not about parents seeking to establish alternate family values, but grown-ups who want free love and lower taxes and who chide their kids for speaking ill of Richard Nixon at the dinner table. Casting a sympathetic eye on these lost souls, director Ang Lee settles into a world of fondue sets and waterbeds, focusing on the Hoods and the Carvers, two families whose parents and children intermingle in disturbing and disruptive ways. Kevin Klein gives a shattering performance as Ben Hood, a man whose sputtering marriage to Elena, played by Joan Allen, has led him to have an affair with Janie Carver, a neighbor played by Sigourney Weaver. With Janie's husband Jim frequently out of town on business, the two have afternoon rendezvous at the Carver house, but they're an odd match. He's dopey and eager to please. She seems utterly bored and detached. As Ben and Janie's affair unfolds, Everyone else in the Hood and Carver families is experiencing uncertainty about their own desires and acting on impulse. Elena gets tired of her button-down lifestyle and starts flirting with a spiritual guru and shoplifting from a local pharmacy. Her daughter Wendy, played by Christina Ricci, is at an age where she's exploring her nascent sexuality too. She meets up with Mikey Carver, played by Elijah Wood, for French kissing sessions and freaks out his younger brother Sandy with a game of I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Meanwhile, Wendy's older brother Paul, played by Toby McGuire, is back from boarding school for Thanksgiving break and obsessing over a pretty rich girl named Libbets Casey, played by Katie Holmes. All of these relationships come to a head one night during an ice storm, where the Hood and Carver parents go to a key party and leave their children to fend for themselves. One of the many strengths of the ice storm is how much period detail is used to illuminate these relationships. One of my favorite moments is when Jim Carver comes back from one of his business trips and plops down too hard on his side of the waterbed, causing a wave that nearly throws his wife overboard. It's a perfectly tragicomic example of how impossible it's become to reconcile the day-to-day mundanity of family life with the whims of the sexually liberated. The parents in the ice storm are bored and dissatisfied with the lives they've chosen. They fulfill the expectations of having a nice middle-class family in a Connecticut suburb, but they also feel like they've missed out on the sexual revolution. The consequences of their behavior turns tragic on the night of the eponymous event. They're too wrapped up in their own selfish psychodrama to look after their kids, and even then, they have no idea what to say to them. One of the funniest scenes in the movie has Ben driving his 16-year-old son Paul back home for Thanksgiving, and deciding that maybe, hey, they should finally have that birds of the bees talk. The night of the ice storm, when Mikey strikes out on his fateful walk, his entire journey becomes a metaphor for the whole slippery situation, where the guardrails that define family life are gone, and freedom looks a lot like carelessness and neglect. The hangover that follows is a doozy. What the hell are you kids doing down here? What do you think we're doing, Dad? What do I think? I think you're probably 
touching each other. I think uh, you're touching that reckless jerk-off, for God's sake, and I think he's trying to get into your slacks. I think at 14 years of age, you're getting ready to give up your girlhood. Hey, hang on there, Mr. Hood. Don't you direct a single word at me, Mikey. I don't want to hear it. I'll be discussing this matter with your parents very soon. Young lady? Talking to me, Dad? Who else would I be talking to? Take that thing off! So, Tasha and Keith, what is your history with the ice storm, and how did it hold up for you in the year 2020? Revisiting this film was a a weird experience. I remember it pretty distinctly and strongly in a certain way. And this is just one of those films that show me how much I fundamentally changed as a person over the Mm. years since this came out. I remember seeing this film as a almost a pretty straightforward morality tale about a bunch of like selfish hedonistic people who were all off pursuing their own, you know, sexual pleasures. And as a result, basically of them being like selfish, terrible parents, tragedy strikes. And (laughs) being considerably older now and having a lot more experience with, I guess, human existence, this movie just seems to me like a story about a bunch of like very sad and lonely people looking for some form of connection in their life and not finding it in their spouses, not finding it in their neighbors, not finding it in their work or living situations, and just sort of trying to keep up pretenses to the point where everything falls apart. And the degree to which that's reflected throughout like every strata of age in this film, like down to the kids who similarly don't know what they want and are kind of hungering after some kind of connection, I think is just remarkable. I didn't love The Ice Storm revisiting it, but boy, I've I've got a lot more respect for it than I had when I watched it in 1997. And I feel like it's a much more interesting text than I ever gave it credit for. Yeah, I like this movie a lot. I mean, one thing that's worth remembering is it came out the same fall as Boogie Nights. So we kind of got this big double feature of, of, you know, sort of let's take another look at the 1970s and and let's, let's, let's kind of pull back and see what, what, you know, let's, let's use a very specific corner of the 1970s to talk about some larger changes within the culture, which I I think both films do very differently, but I think they both do really well. Tasha, I'm kind of with you in that. I mean, I always like this film, but I do definitely see it as a person who might, might be middle-aged at this point, uh, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> sees it differently than I did when I was, uh, you know, in my, in my 20s. And you're right. I mean, these, these are people who, you know, it's interesting. I, I think they're sad people whose marriages would have hit rough times anyway. But there's kind of like, they're kind of caught up in this perfect storm of their own marital crises coinciding with these shifts in the culture. Um, And also ice. And ice. And ice, the perfect ice storm. Um, (laughs) But I mean, I love the way this film depicts the way larger cultural changes kind of rain down on everyone, whether you want them to or not. I think that we've seen them I would think we've seen that in our own time. I think sort of the, some of the hatefulness of the current uh, era has, I think it's found its way into everyday life in, in ways that we maybe won't be able to assess fully until the Rick Moody of, of our generation comes and writes about uh, about this era. Hmm. But, um, you know, you get that. I mean, I, it, I love a film that's, that's rich in, in period detail and like, you know, when you get to that scene at the at the book fair or the little book sale that Joan Allen's character uh, Elena uh, visits, you see all these covers of books, 
And, you know, it could just have been easy shorthand for it's 1973 or whatever, but I feel like it's exactly the right books to be at that book sale and like exactly the right ideas to maybe even processed a little bit and then, and then put out <laughs> for someone else to take on, which is another theme of the film. To be specific about what those books are, they're self-help books. Uh, self-help books, but also- Really heavily inclined, I think, towards feminism and just kind of like claiming yourself as a woman. Yeah, and but also a very sort of like you know mass market paperback version of of, uh, of mm-hmm. late sixties early seventies uh, feminism too, but yeah, great performances too. I mean, Kevin Klein, we don't see him that much anymore, and, and almost to the point where you can kind of forget how great he is whenever we do so get to good. see him. <laughs> I mean, for that first yeah. shot of him, I'm mean, part of the clothing, but a lot of his expression on his face. That first shot of him is like, oh, we know everything about this character. And yet we don't because I think there's sort of depths of emotion that we get to as we get past the outward clownishness, you know, and the kids are all great. I don't know. I, 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 I could go on, but I think, it's a, I think it's a really good movie. And, and I, I love the ending of it, too, and a lot of the way what's happening, what these characters are going through are communicated without words. But we can get into that as we get a little deeper into the film. It's also just a really interesting film to revisit this much later because it's one of those time capsule actor movies where every time somebody new shows up on screen, you kind of have a, oh my God, <laughs> like yeah. that that person. And, and just like seeing so many of them so young is interesting, but seeing so many people that we just haven't seen in a while is interesting. It's It's a really spectacular collection of actors. And if you want to get freaked out, we're almost as far away in time from the release of this film as this film was from the release of the 1970s. I think almost exactly, exactly, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. It's like 23 years. I I think it would be, I think it's like one year removed because this movie starts in like 73, I think. Oh, that's that's an evil (laughs) game to play, Keith. Um, Yeah. it, It is interesting what both of you are saying, I think, is true about encountering this film a little bit as you get a little bit older and maybe seeing it in a different light because I'm happy in my marriage, don't get me wrong, but I under I do understand what that sacrifice is, what you're kind of accepting and what you're leaving behind. And so you can kind of see, well, you can at least see that where their minds might go where it's like, wait a minute, this thing that I've been promised, this happiness that I've been able to achieved for myself or with this idea of the happiness that I've been able to achieve for myself of having, you know, a nice home and a, a nice suburb with the wife and two kids, the husband and two kids. That's not doing it for me. Mm-hmm. And all these kids, all these, and everybody else is out there having fun, you know, or at least they had fun in California in this way, <laughs> you know, four or five years ago. And it's finally made its way to Connecticut. All the, all of this fun. Maybe if we open things up, if I have an affair or go to a key party or something, that's going to, solve my problem i think and i think the film understands that and escapes kind of a more narrow reading of it which is as a moral tale which is as a more judgmental film about parents who are behaving recklessly and who pay for that recklessness in the final bit angley does kind of succeed in making you sympathetic for these very flawed but needy characters and the actors certainly help one film this was reminding me of too was when we were talking about Joan Allen's character especially is something like the rain people that the uh, Francis Ford Coppola movie because the rain people is just about a housewife who just decides to leave <laughs> and there's you know and I, I guess Kramer versus Kramer does that a little bit too but it's like but but this is more surprise like completely out of the blue she just leaves and it's just like a very sudden abandonment of everything that was expected of her and then we kind of follow her from that point and I, it just it feels like both 
movies are tapping into a kind of a cultural feeling in a way that to me is at least seems an authentic place in an authentic way of both those movies that being said parents keep an eye on your kids come on <laughs> <laughs> it's just some seriously supervised kids in spite of what i said like there definitely is kind of uh i don't know that i'd necessarily want to say neglect per se because it's not i think we get way way too uptight these days about leaving kids alone even for mm-hmm. a second i don't know if i think but what they need is more supervision, more direct supervision from their kind of out of touch parents who have a very hard time communicating with them or or figuring out how to communicate with them. So much as what they need is like some kind of occupation, some form of, of hobby or social outlet, like just something to do with their lives. They seem very bored. It might be a generational thing, too, because it's like the whole idea of the helicopter parent thing is a pretty recent phenomenon I, I certainly had more freedom when i was a kid than my kids do now and my you know hearing my dad talk about what he what it was like for him growing up you know in the 50s was just insane he probably should have been killed multiple times over by the kind of trouble they were making they're literally making bombs he and his he and his he's he and his older brother so i think there is a certain amount of permissiveness that goes into it but one of the things that the ice storm emphasizes is how much trouble they have just communicating just like talking i mean that birds that really the birds and the bees talk in the car is just goes so poorly it, you know and there's a bit where kevin klein's character catches christina ricci and elijah wood's characters kind of you know obviously having done a little bit of fooling around in the basement and and he doesn't really know how to react to that in any coherent <laughs> way and so there's they're flawed i mean you know uh, you know i don't know what the film is necessarily trying to say about it other than these are people who just lack that skill and uh, of course the children everybody winds up paying for it in the end i did not find that scene very realistic i find it hard to believe that any red-blooded american father would have more trouble with his daughter how did he put it preparing to give away her girlhood than the fact that she's wearing a freaking Richard <laughs> Nixon mask, yeah. which I think probably should have gone just like directly in the, the direction of like, okay, you're, you're grounded until you're 20 and we're going to talk about fetishes. Like <laughs> it's just a really phenomenally disturbing detail. Honestly, it's a phenomenally yeah. disturbing detail that I, I think should have put Elijah Wood off a little more than it did. And he's probably lucky that that's a clumsy abortive sex act whatever it was going to be did not happen because he might have ended up just unable to get off without looking into richard nixon's deep into richard nixon's soulful eyes for the rest of his life a lot of bad sex in this movie guys terrible <laughs> sex and and horrifying imagery uh <laughs> kind of comically so in a way i mean there's uh-huh. there's more like dark humor in this film that i remembered by a good bit the moment at the key party where one of the couples realizes that they're just going home together and the, the <laughs> palpable relief sweating off both of them is just like a light comic moment in the middle of like a fairly tense and dramatic scene. It's unclear whether she did accidentally draw her husband's keys or recognize them and went for them to the relief of them both. But either way, that moment where she takes her husband's hand and their eyes meet and you can just see how incredibly glad they are to be able to 
plausibly run away from all this. It's it's kind of a beautiful moment in the middle of so much like disconnect and difficulty and bad communication to finally see two people on the same page, like emotionally, sexually, dramatically in the moment. <laughs> the, oh, I, my, though my favorite bit in that scene is the woman who brings her large adult son, <laughs> adult oh. son <laughs> to the it, party. <laughs> that's hilarious, but also kind of like, you know, it's just keeping with this theme of like adult sexuality and kid sexuality overlapping with each other in, in, in really creepy ways too. And then like this the idea that, you know, you got to be liberated. It may hurt. It may make you feel uncomfortable, but you got to be unliberated. You got to be liberated no matter what, you know, it's sort of, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, know, right. it's like, it's like the thing. It's like the thing to be in this yeah. neighborhood. So there's like this weird social pressure that is bearing down in a, such a ruinous fashion on every single marriage mm. uh, in that uh, party. And nobody wants to be visibly seen to be the least liberated person at the party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just in the whole thing about it being optional, it really feels like like a Tupperware party. You know, it's like, yeah, you don't have to buy anything. It's kind of like this, you know, low pressure, high pressure thing. I love the way Dot, Allison Janney's character, uh, introduces too. It's like, hey, new thing this year. <laughs> <laughs> It, it really does feel like a Tupperware party in that moment where she's just saying, like, we've got burpless lids now, you know, and just the upbeat, almost cheerleaderism of like, we're trying the latest, you know, last year it was taupe. This year it's sleeping with one of your neighbors. Hmm. So how do you see this as fitting into Lee's filmography? What what would you consider like his strengths as, as a director, at least at this point, because his career certainly has had phases? I think his strengths are at this point, and and maybe you know for, further than he realized, along than he realizes, is sociological. I feel like you know he's especially those those first films, you know, where he talked about you know, he dug into Chinese American culture. I think it's just really good about figuring out how people in certain you know subgroups think and and how they relate to each other and what the the mores are, and you know that carries on through sensibility, which was immediately precedes this. Uh, and this film, I think you can see it in Right with the Devil. Obviously, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a little more fantastical, but you know it's there too. So I, th- I think it's really one thing he does especially well. You know, it's, I think it's well in evidence here. So many of his films are also just about repression, mm. emotional repression, emotional retardation, particularly coming out of a person's personal and cultural background. And so many of his films are about the kind of burning longing that tends to live under that kind of repression. Uh, so many of his most indelible characters are just about like the things that they want and know that they can't have. And we're going to talk about other films of his a little later, but Mm -hmm. I guess I'll just preview it by bringing up Crouching Tiger and the degree to which that movie is about duty and about people who want things and tamp it down because of duty. But if you look at Brokeback Mountain, you see people who want things and are tamping it down because of society. If you look at this film, you see people who want things and are tamping it down because of propriety. If you look at Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, you see people who want things and are, are tamping it down out of their culture and sort of like geographical, like political situation and a feeling again of like duty and responsibility to other people. It's just kind of an overall like repeating thing. And I, I think it's interesting that one of his like lesser loved films, Hulk is, is fundamentally about somebody who has to repress his emotions at all times or terrible things happen. And then eventually he has to let go of that repression and terrible things happen. You know, mm. I think it's just a, a long term running obsession with him. And I would be a little surprised if that was not also cultural and stemming from his own background. 
Yeah. And I think it's also through two of his writer, James Seamus, who's written so many of his movies too, and then would go on to write and direct the only good Philip Roth adaptation. What was it? Was it? I can't even, for some reason, I can't even remember the name of it. What is is that it? The, not the humbling. That's a different one. It's um, one word title. I'm looking at I've read the book. I forget what uh, oh the name God. of it is. I'm looking it up. Uh, Indignation. Which, if you haven't seen, it's such a gem. I haven't. I've yeah. read the book, but I haven't seen the movie. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, it's got, there's kind of a centerpiece scene in that with Tracy Letts that goes on for pages. You know, it'll be pages and pages and pages of script. I mean, it's just, it's kind of meant to be kind of the central kind of provocative scene in the movie. It's just perfect. It's like the best Philip Roth thing you've seen. All of those are really good points. I think in terms of his direction the things one of the things that always stands out to me is how good the performances tend to be in his movies there you know that's true here it just feels like every character and every performance has been thought through you know in a a collaborative way it's almost like mike lee you know i I don't know if you want to go two different lees i guess but like because you know mike lee has the the famous process where actors are really empowered to collaborate and to create their characters to think about backstories and to really give them as a fullness uh i think ang lee has those same strengths as a filmmaker uh you know these are all all these performances are so well realized. You can like focus on one, any one of these characters, particularly the grown-ups, and and really sense a, a you know a um, a depth there that goes beyond just the scenes uh, that they're in. And so uh, that's uh, one of the things. And it's one of the things that that keeps the film again from being a simple morality play because these characters are not as simple as they seem. You know, Spike Lee also gets a lot of praise for uh, giving actors a lot of freedom to create and define the character. Is it a Lee thing? It's, it may be a Lee thing. What's another? It was another I guess, uh, um, yeah, that's all, all the Lees I got. <laughs> so, Listeners, please so send we, us your favorite Lees and uh, whether they're known for collaborative filmmaking. <laughs> so I, I mentioned in the keynote about, we talked about the evocation period and the, and the bearing that it has on the story. So I wanted to ask you about that relationship but also i wanted to know you know i mentioned the water but are there other 70s details that kind of stood out for you this is a really small one but i actually just really appreciate that the toys that are getting blown up are so generic you know these days it would have to be star wars toys or my little ponies or you know something specific like very specific and there'd be a symbolism in that like whatever franchise or property it was that was chosen it would be seen as like some kind of cultural commentary or you know some kind of statement i guess you know if he was blowing up his baby Yoda or whatever. Like, (laughs) is this an anti-capitalism question? Is it like, is an anti-franchise or an anti-co-option or an anti-escapism commentary? And it's like, no, you know, it's just an unbranded little plastic plane. It's just an unbranded grim soldier doll that can only say one thing. (laughs) There's just something about these, the simplicity of toys of the time that again, kind of speaks to, the sense of longing that everybody has just, you know, for something that doesn't feel cheap and plastic and generic, which these toys really do. You, you know what I actually think think about, though, now that you mentioned these toys, this would be one of the Carver boys, the younger of the Carver boys, who blows, he's blowing up his model planes. And it made me think, like, aren't those the kind of things that you put together with your dad? <laughs> it, is this a way of him showing 
resentment for his dad being absent from his life. I mean, from being the kind of guy who's out of town, you know, whose presence is so um, negligible in this family's life that they don't even know that he's been gone for a couple of days when he returns from a business trip. And, and so maybe, you know, blowing up model planes is uh, kind of a subconscious act of resentment towards his dad. If we were going to take that as a big symbolic statement, I would think it would be more about the uh, symbolic destruction of his own childhood, his desire to move on, which we mm-hmm. see in other ways. The fact that the most sexually confident and compelling character in the movie, like his mom, played by Sigourney Weaver, takes away the toys that he's trying to blow up and hands him a whip instead. <laughs> like that, just, <laughs> oh that feels really fraught with uh, <laughs> yeah. potential sexual symbols. And the fact that he then, having been told to just go play with his whip, proceeds to just like start completely destroying uh, one of their outdoor house plants, just like tearing it apart. It's just this ridiculous kind of like symbol of uh, just like errant destruction of kind of the the household domesticity of the household. If anything, it, it feels too overstated to me. Like that is just a ridiculous bit of symbolism, like top to bottom. I think <laughs> with the, uh, I love that image though of Sigourney with that whip. That is, that is so it, it's so disturbing. I'm gonna have to correct you here. Though, the, obviously, the most sexually confident character in the film is Francis Davenport, as played by David Crumholtz, uh, <laughs> Toby McGuire's more experienced uh, roommate who's a total sleazebag, uh, yeah. and, and I love him. <laughs> it's fantastic performance. The little grin that he gives Toby Maguire when uh, Toby Maguire realizes that he's gotten in there ahead of him is, uh, <laughs> oh. you want to talk about punchable faces, man. Love David Crumholtz. So what, what are you, Keith? Any, any, anything about the evocation of period here that stands out for you? Well, I mentioned the book, the you know, tray of books, which I, which I like a lot. I also like the reference to a very specific reference, but I think, you know, another good one for the film about going to see Deep Throat in the theater, which you could do. I mean, it was a brief moment where, where porn was mainstreamed enough that people would go see Deep Throat. And for a couple of years after that, other breakthrough porn movies, like right next to like where, you know, the Poseidon Adventure was playing. What a what a strange moment in time. I'm always struck. I, I, I spent a lot of time for various research things looking at old, old newspapers. And I'm always struck when you see like a, a mid-sized city's movie ads and, uh, you know, you see an ad for porn movies right next to, you know, Benji. It's, it's, it's such a particular moment in culture. And, and one, you know, in retrospect, I, I'm not sure that could have that could have been sustained, right? I mean, that is, that's with all this stuff, you know, you kind of hit too much liberation, you kind of kind of end up hitting a wall. Well, the, the reactionary forces kind of beat it down. But it, it's, uh, what was the end of porn chic? Was it just taper off? Or was there actually some kind of event? Um, I mean, there was, by the end of the 70s, I can go, I mean, I know more about this than I probably should. Uh, but by the end of the 70s, they're releasing like R-rated versions of X-rated films, like the the adult version of Alice in Wonderland and things like that, which mm-hmm. would play regular theaters. You can find old reviews uh, that Ebert's written of them as well. But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, that moment kind of passed pretty quickly. That's an interesting thing that I'm not sure that I've ever thought about is the removal of uh, porn films from, like, from theaters 
in part responsible for the like the incredible drift into extreme porn and like fetishization that we've gotten like the fact that there's not you know the one porn movie that everybody's watching the way there are blockbusters the thing that's in playing the local theater so it seems more communal has that contributed to the degree that pornography has just like been splintered down into every like faction imaginable hmm because we don't have a collective or like standardization uh, of like culturally discussed pornography anymore. Hmm. Sounds like a subject of another podcast. <laughs> uh, so coming soon to Patreon. <laughs> the squirmiest episode we've ever had. We really ha- yeah, we haven't really done our porn bonus episode, which would uh... dissolve does dishes. We'll call it <laughs> next next picture show after dark. Yes, yeah. way way after dark. <laughs> Well, before we get away from that 70s detail, just mm-hmm. I, there's the clothing. The clothing is pretty spectacular. One of the things that stood out to me most is the various outfits that Sigourney Weaver is wearing. Um, the one at the dinner party that's kind of the low-cut velourish suit with the zipper just above the breasts that strongly suggests at any moment she might just like peel off the whole jumpsuit is very much a 70s standard. And like the big round plastic bead necklace that she's wearing at the key party uh, really stood out to me. Like those necklaces often were extremely ugly. Like I, I remember those necklaces, but this particular one just kind of like evokes fruit in an interesting way. Like the beads are like so big and lush and they look wet. Like they actually look like grapes or something. And they kind of like evoke a lushness that isn't necessarily present in a lot of the rest of her. And if you look at how she's dressed versus how Joan Allen is dressed in these like Mm -hmm. very form hiding like macrame kind of things and like shapeless all the way down to the floor kind of skirts uh, and everybody's kind of dressed in earth tones like the joke about how the 70s were all about sex because everybody just wanted to get those clothes off all the time has rarely seemed as relevant (laughs) as it does here I love the costuming in this film yeah that contrast between the Carver and Hood uh, wives is pretty stark uh for sure uh and uh it's an interesting part of of the journey of joan allen's character i mean you feel like again she entered into this marriage with maybe a particular idea of what that was going to be and then that she's been betrayed and she starts to think outside of it she starts flirting with that weird spiritual guru guy and she watches her daughter ride a bike which of course is very symbolic of freedom among you know certain types of freedom and she gets out the bike from the garage and and uh yeah i mean the wardrobe does underscore that underscore underscore where she started and or or as the as the twitter meme goes you know where it started how it's going that's the kind of joan allen's arc in the movie and I think not accidentally she's wearing pants that are wholly inappropriate for <laughs> riding a bike. I, I mean, I've seen this movie a couple of times. I, I knew it, was, it wasn't going to happen, but I kept expecting them to get caught in the spokes and for to have a horrible accident. <laughs> yes, yeah, 70s pants are not good for bikes. Yeah. I, one other thing uh, I would say, though, you take out the cheaper plastic things. And I, I love the furniture in this movie. I would gladly furnish my house and and, and, and stuff that, 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 was, that could be found in these houses, too. And I'd love to have a bubble window uh, in my house, too. What an amazing uh, addition that is. 
I like fondue too. Fondue's great. Well, sure. <laughs> fondue is delicious. I want to go back and re-examine your assertion. I just kind of tripped me up a little in your intro okay. as well. The of Joan Allen flirting with the Reverend. I yeah. it seemed to me when he first turns up in the movie because I didn't remember a lot of details from this movie when he first turned up in the movie. That is exactly what I was expecting for him to represent. You know, a different kind of sexuality than her husband, like maybe an earthier one. Or maybe a more spiritual one, maybe a younger one, maybe a more free one, like something like that. And what I saw instead was her just like pulling away from him at every moment, like uh, just a palpable discomfort Mm -hmm. at the book sale where she talks about why she never went back to his church. And he says that that's no big deal. And then she's visibly drawn away by like the image of her daughter, which is so much more appealing to her, it seems, than this like younger, long haired guy paying attention to her. And then when he turns up at the party, she seems immediately appalled and she shames him and he slinks away and leaves. Like, I, what I saw in that was like a deliberate setup that was kind of playing with that trope of the kind of 70s spiritual guru who's also a like a sex trap for his believers, basically. It seems to me like she looks at him and sees that kind of Jim Jones thing and just immediately pulls back in revulsion. And it, like he, he has no defense for it and he has to run away. That's what I saw way more than I saw any flirting. Hmm. What do you think, Keith? I think any flirting was past tense, though. I, I got to say, there's a reference to a former meeting, but I, I feel like something in that meeting skeeved her out, and now she's really uh, not that happy to see him again. At no point uh, at all. Yeah, maybe I guess I, I guess maybe you misread on my part then, because I felt like he kind of caught her at the right time for her to be interested, because she mm. she had already had an inkling of what was going on with her husband, and uh, you know, and ended up being first dude available. But if you guys saw Revulsion, then uh, maybe I maybe it's a misread on my part. How much of the blame for that marriage's distress do you think the film places on Elena? I didn't think much. I mean, I, you know, he's the one having the affair, right? Or but he, the affair seems to be a product of sexual frustration more than anything else. So, or am I misreading that? Is her coldness toward him in bed when he tries to start something with her because she already suspects an affair? That's why I read it. I. Definitely didn't think that there was much blame there at all with either of them. I I saw both of them as being in a very sad situation. Mm. You know, I, I saw her as having kind of sexually withdrawn uh, to a point where like when she, she it seems like she has a moment of uh, sexuality and like she turns to him and says, I think I and then they like run off and have sex. And to me, that was just like, I'm feeling something sexual for the first time in a long time. And the excitement that she gets doesn't seem like an erotic or sexual excitement. It seems much more like maybe we can finally be together for a moment the way that you want. I just assumed that she was having some sort of like biological reaction that was pushing her in a more asexual direction. Hmm. And then, you know, he's very clearly frustrated. I think that's why he's having the affair. And she knows that he's having the affair and is depressed and angry about it. I think rightly, it just kind of comes down to they can't talk about the problems between them. I think that they're both making not great choices. And if you really want to point fingers and count blame, they're both doing things that are wrong. But I don't think the movie is judging them hugely. Like, I don't think that there's a sense of narrative blame going on here exactly. The sadness of both characters is so palpable that you can't feel. <laughs> I think if either one of them found any pleasure at all from what they were doing, I mean, it's just it, for Kevin Klein's character. I mean, this 
you know, he has no idea how to relate to Sigourney Weaver. I mean, that's a really poor match. And, you know, and his attempt at pillow talk is, is, is hilariously catastrophic. I mean, he doesn't know how to relate to anybody. He can't relate to his wife. He can't relate to his son. You know, I think maybe there might be a, you know, where we pick up in the movie, maybe there was a, a feeling like he missed out on something. I mean, that that, mm-hmm. that was a point I was making in the, in the keynote. It's like, these are characters who have you know, invested in having a marriage and kids and they would have done so pre counterculture. Right. I mean, cause it's 1973, their kids are like teenagers, right? These marriages would have started in what, probably the early sixties. And so they got to watch all of this happening from this suburban enclave and they, and they missed out and maybe they got married young. Kevin Klein or in Sigourney Weaver certainly maybe feel like they want to, have some part in this era that they missed out on that the young people are out there enjoying themselves and that they're kind of stuck in this fairly boring unsatisfying situation i think one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie it was the moment where you realize that, you know it is still a family it's not a total disaster uh, although it's going to meet with disaster is is when uh after that that awkward when he interrupts the the nixon makeout session or whatever yeah. uh when um you know uh, christian Ricci's feet are cold so he carries her home and and, uh. and like you could tell they, they hadn't done this in a while you know and they missed it they, they were both getting something from this from this moment that they hadn't had in a while it's probably the last time he'd ever do that too it breaks my heart it's it's, it's such a good yeah. moment it's foreshadowing too for mm. another child who gets carried yeah. in that way later yeah um, god almighty the way to the kid like god, it's so shattering the way that's handled but i kind of want to talk a little bit about the toby mcguire character and that whole misadventure because it is a little bit detached from the movie and, and, and of course he narrates the film and his return is kind of where the film lands so maybe this is a good way to land you know, our discussion. I mean, what what did you make of that? What what do you make of Paul's interest in in Libets and all of that happening outside the new Canaan bubble? And how do you how do you see that fitting into the overall story here? For me, it was in a way almost a of a piece with the weird connection going on between Sandy and Wendy, the two younger kids. There's just a feeling there that the adults are so so convinced in some way that sex is going to fix their problems that uh, like sexual liberation and the theoretical emotional connection that it might bring might fix their loneliness and their inability to communicate and their feelings of emptiness. And you kind of see Toby Maguire's character in the exact same kind of way is chasing after a, a girl who's kind of visibly more pulled together and sexualized and seemingly popular and seemingly smarter than he is. And he just comes across as this kind of like fumbling dork, not unlike his father, but he's so convinced (laughs) that getting with her in some way is what he wants and is a solution. He seems to me like he's yearning after something that's in many ways just out of his league. You know, those two kind of seem more mature and together and with it than he is, but he's still kind of like in a fumbling sort of way reaching out for sex specifically with this one girl to the point where he's willing to drug his roommate Mm -hmm. to get there. (laughs) And the whole thing, 
I mean, on some level, it feels like it has much, much lower stakes than any of the other attempted connections. Because you couldn't really say that what Wendy and Sandy has is sexual, exactly. But there's so much uncomfortable tension there about how young they are and where they're going with what they're doing, what they want out of it. And there's so much discomfort with the adults and how they're ruining their lives and their kids' lives. So somewhere in the middle, you've got this one story about a boy at an age appropriate for this kind of sexual experimentation. And it ends up just being as kind of like empty and disappointing and badly communicated and uh, not connecting as everybody else's attempts at anything. Yes. Keith, any any thoughts? Uh, what, what kind of name is Libets? <laughs> <laughs> That's my question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's an example of how Kind of what we were talking about before, how the the feel of a of a culture uh, kind of you know, takes different forms in different places, but it's kind of fundamentally the same. I mean, you know, unsupervised kids uh, drinking, trying whatever, or trying out whatever drugs are in the medicine cabinet. It's the same as same as anywhere else, but just you know, downtown. <laughs> yeah, and I th- I mean I think it, it it gives the story an ending or and a beginning. I mean, because you, mm-hmm. you, you get that Fantastic Four framing stuff which i i don't you all probably understand more about what's being said than i do it's all right there on the page i mean all all right there in the movie it's not they're family they're superheroes yeah family it's also kind of a ridiculous pretentious like mixture of high culture and low culture Uh because you're like you're looking at these very four color images on the page with everybody communicating everything in exclamations um, a lot of exclamation points and then you're getting toby mcguire's like kind of heavy-handed overdubbed like voiceover uh, explaining the cosmicness of it all Mm -hmm. i I, I don't think it's the movie saying these are the themes of the movie i think it's the movie saying these are a pretentious uh kids uh, uh interpretation of the themes of the movie God, I hope so. Though the film probably could dial back a little on the metaphors and be fine. Mm. I mean, we're already dealing with how many ice trays getting cracked. (laughs) 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 It's like, okay, we kind of, you know, in the various uh, degrees of ice forming and, and melting and all that that signifies. But I think it does lead to a very touching coda, though. I do love just him getting off the train and with the family waiting and then Kevin Klein breaking down in the car. It just feels like that's the first moment when things thaw, right? Things are thawing a bit in the family. And uh, it feels like a hopeful beginning. Like they've just been kind of woken up in a very frightening way. And maybe they can kind of come together in grief and as a full unit, all four of them in the car. I push back on that a little bit, actually, because I feel like it's a different ending than Tommy McGuire's character, uh, the different name than Paul thinks he's going to get, because he thinks he gets off, he's had, he's gone to the city, he's had a disappointing experience, he's kind of developed a new appreciation for his family, and there they are on the train tracks, and he's got a smile on his face until they get to the back of the car, and within the span of the film, he never finds out what happens about the, the death and everything. Uh, but he sees his dad break down and he realizes this is not a happy ending. This is this is the beginning of, of a new phase that's going to be perhaps even more distressing and, uh, you know, uh, more difficult for him than the phase he's just gotten out of. And I'm really glad that they don't have the explanation because so much of this film is about poor communication and inability to express emotion and inability to to say what you're thinking and say what you're feeling. And that moment on the train 
platform where he sees them and they see him and they're all kind of relieved is so, so sweet. And there's so much of a feeling of like connection there. And then it so quickly falls apart in the car with just everybody's kind of in their own little world. Everybody's on a different page. Everybody's experiencing different things. And we see no effort made for them to communicate about it. And like oh eventually. God, this, is such, this is like it's diametrically opposite version, uh, like reading of that moment for me. I just feel like he breaks mm. down and then his wife is showing him sympathy you know i think i felt like there was you know and the fact that the three of them were actually together not in the car waiting for the fourth to come back and join them i just know that's wild that we had <laughs> that we've read it completely differently but uh i'm assuming that none of you have read the book or they I, would I have read, come I up by book. now it's, it's been a year it's been years since i read it the book is actually in some ways more disturbing <laughs> than the film i i can't remember all the details but there's some so there's a lot more adult and child uh sexuality overlapping not not in a, like an incesty kind of way but in just in more uncomfortable ways as well than, than we get in the film yeah, I wasn't going to grill you about details from the book per se, but I am sort of curious. Like this entire movie to me just has like a very choked literary feel. And what Scott was saying about the heavy, heavy symbolism kind of fits into that. Like this is a movie that feels like it's based on a book that is probably a lot more interior than the story we're getting. And I feel like we could talk for another hour just about people's motivations and find a lot more of these kind of disagreements is putting it too strongly, but different interpretations about what different characters are feeling at different moments, why they do what they do. Like we've been talking about this for quite a while and we haven't even really dug into what Christina Ricci's character wants or what she's feeling. I feel like there's a whole thesis to be written about Sigourney Weaver's character and the particular ways in which she's acting out and why she's doing it, what the film gives us. There are all of these different kind of like threads pulling in different directions. And I feel like you, you probably need like a 600 page book full of interiority to actually tease those things out. I feel like the density here becomes really interesting, but I also feel like the likelihood of any two people on this planet watching this film and seeing the same movie is probably pretty low. Wait, before we, before we move on, Tasha, quickly, which character is which Fantastic Four character? Well, let's see. Um, Tommy McGuire's Spider-Man. No, he's not in the Fantastic Four. <laughs> well, he was briefly, but I, I won't get into that. Um, no, please. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, the cast is too big. Like, we don't really have... Well, I said uh, that just limit to the family. Which family members are which Fantastic Four characters? I would say Paul Hood, uh, Tommy McGuire, would be closest to the thing. He's kind of a, a bumbling, uh, socially awkward force. Right? Paul? Yeah. He's not slick. No, he's he's not slick, but he also just like completely lacks any sense of like menace or uh, gruffness or confidence. Mm, like, I honestly think the thing is the hardest person to cast out of all this. If anything, weirdly enough, I'd say Elena. Like, she's mm. the the one who's kind of the odd person out who keeps pulling away from everybody who seems to be like kind of sternest and strictest in uh, like knowing what she wants and who she is. But she's not content with what she wants and who she is. So I'll uh, I'll give her the thing. I think Janie Carver, Sigourney Weaver's character, is uh, definitely the Human Torch. Like she's <laughs> burning brighter, brighter than anybody else out there. Hmm. Ben Hood, Kevin Klein is uh, Mr. Fantastic. He's like sure. trying to keep it all together and be the responsible dad, and he's just freaking clueless. 
having a really hard time dealing with any of them. Maybe Mikey is uh, the invisible woman. He's the one who keeps kind of disappearing and mm. he's like kind of hardest to grasp. But we like we get that uh, scene of him and his brother serving dinner to the adults. You know, he, he does have kind of like a family oriented, caring kind of persona. But he's also like off flirting with people behind everybody's back. Like that's that's early Sue Storm, 60s Sue Storm. So which was Namor? Okay, we'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so maybe maybe when we talk about the ice storm again in relation to the nest, we can talk about how the family in that film uh, matches up with different Fantastic <laughs> Four characters. But in the meantime, we are going to be back with what would normally be feedback. But we're going to do something a little different. Stay with us. Now would normally be the time for feedback. We, we get thoughts from our listeners on recent episodes, but apparently our David Byrne episodes were so thoroughly locked in and comprehensive that none of you had any response to them. Either that or you heard me singing <laughs> for, uh, talking head songs and, and, wanted, and then immediately unsubscribed. Um, uh, anyway, uh, we thought we'd use this opportunity to talk briefly about Ang Lee. Uh, he's been making movies since the early 90s, many of them excellent, but we have not discussed him on the show until now. Uh, let's start with you, Keith. What's your favorite Ang Lee movie? What's the Ang Lee film you maybe want to talk about? Yeah, it's not my favorite. It, it, it's, a, it's a flawed film, but I feel like someone's got a stump for Hulk, which I think is a really interesting movie. Uh, and is it a film he should have made, he had to make? I don't know. But I, I feel like it is very much an Ang Lee putting his personal stamp on the superhero film. Uh, it brings out those themes of repression uh, that you were talking about before. But I also feel like, you know, it's really Lee and screenwriter James Seamus and a lot of other people. There's a whole New Yorker article that uses the uh, uh, the Hulk script as an example of how tough it is to get screenplay credit <laughs> for anything in a Hollywood film. But, you know, the, the creative, let's just say the, the creative team is using uh, the superhero film as a form of a personal expression in a way you don't see that often. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to just dismiss MCU as not being personal in any way. I, I think especially like the first Guardians of the Galaxy he feels like a very personal film and a couple of other by panther a couple of others but uh this is like sort of an auteur coming in and like you know auteuring it up with this material and he's doing some interesting things like trying to you know using the comic book panel on the screen in a really interesting way mm -hmm. uh there's a long I, I i love the chase through the desert which is like this long lyrical scene that you just don't get in superhero movies you don't get in in action movies i i thought it was it was interesting i feel like the end is kind of disastrous but it's an interesting disaster where he's like tries to make like sort of an abstract almost like akira or anime style fight scene where where what's happening is not always clear but but it's you know, it's something um, mm -hmm. stimulating. So I think the superhero movie as as a whole would be taken a very different course if it wasn't a financial disappointment. Obviously, the Dark Knight series and, you know, Christopher Nolan's thing is its own very much Christopher Nolan film as a superhero film. But past that point, it becomes a lot more, um, you know, f formulaic is not the right words because I like these movies. But, but it becomes a lot more house style, a lot more like sort of predictable, a lot more like generic. Sort of, no, no, I, said, <laughs> I know but, you don't want to but, say but, that. But, I'm saying it, <laughs> but definitely a lot more corporate mandated, which is maybe yeah. worse than generic in some ways. But, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I think it's I think it's a really interesting film that got overlooked a little in its time. I kind of get why people didn't go for it. 
it came out the year after Spider-Man, which was like the biggest crowd pleasiest, uh, you know, superhero movie you can imagine. Uh, this was not that, but um, I think it's worth a look. I completely agree. I mean, you know, I appreciated it at the time for the flawed thing that it was. But as you said, I mean, it became like the model of what not to do in some respects. And, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and then of course, Marvel had to go and do another Hulk movie and then have a different Hulk for the other movies. And, and um, you know, it felt like it was something they had to fix. And when they came across the fix that was hugely successful, then then a lot of the strengths of this movie were abandoned. But the psychological force of hulk is um rare and just not something you see uh, that often so I, I do have a lot of appreciation for that tasha what about you well keith probably went with the most counter instinctual film uh in his filmography so i i'm gonna counter that by going with the most instinctual film in his filmography which is in many ways like the less interesting or daring choice but somebody's got to do it uh, for me it's crouching tiger hidden dragon always will be that movie is just so visually beautiful on so many levels. It is such a an interesting match of emotion to cinematography, of emotion to fight choreography, of emotion to costuming and design. The degree to which it's a love story about two people who can't be together in just really can't be overstated, but it's just such a great action movie. It's funny in surprising places and surprising ways. The fights are uh, exciting and dynamic and engaging, and at the time, at least, very surprising. Like, the kind of wire work going on there was just not familiar to uh, a Western audience much at all. So there's a lot that happens over the course of this movie, and it's all very swoony and almost folktale-ish, folklore-ish, but it's all based in very accessible emotions, very relatable emotions, um, just kind of in a skin that back in 2000, uh, again, mainstream Western audiences really hadn't seen much before. Uh, you just, you kind of can't beat the performances in that movie, particularly from uh, Michelle Yeoh and uh, Zhang Ziyi. I, like, just overall, I, you know, Chow Young-Fat as well. I know people argue a lot about his accent in that movie, but kind of the triumvirate of the three of them and the the master student versus student who needs a master no more three-way relationship they've go, they've got going on is just so engaging and so dynamic. I feel like he does as I kind of said earlier just so much with the things that people feel that they feel they cannot allow themselves to feel and I feel that comes across maybe more keenly here than in many of his more kind of like domestic, uh, more realistic, more relatable movies, because everything has the freedom to be heightened. Everything has the freedom to be big and magical and almost ridiculous in a way. Uh, it's just, it's such a winning, memorable movie. It, it was it was such a cheering experience to see it become kind of the crossover hit that you would have wanted it to be you know that it just became for a lot of people you know an introduction to a tradition of filmmaking that they just had no familiarity with whatsoever so yeah i loved it i think we, we've been trying we it was a movie of the week for us at the dissolve i think we've been like <laughs> often mentioned crouching tiger as something that that we want to pair with something but it never has quite worked out so i feel like that sometime in the future we're going to hit it because it's a film that I think all of us want to explore a little more. My pick would probably would 
would be maybe would be Brokeback Mountain. That's a film I absolutely loved at the time, and of course, it feels like it's been kind of diminished in a certain. It was diminished at the time by the by the fact that it lost Best Picture to Crash. That was that was that year. It came along also at a time when uh, it was just memed to death. And it was one of those movies I remember at the time thinking like, I cannot wait to see this film when it's been removed from popular culture. Mm, <laughs> popular yeah. culture has got its grubby hands off of Brokeback Mountain and I can appreciate it for the, you know, the intimate, you know, heartbreaking movie that it is. You know, at the same time it does, it, I mean, it feels like, you know, a movie of its time in a way, the sort of story of repressed love between two you know, cowboys in Wyoming based on the Annie Prohl short story. You know, I don't know if it gets made the same way in, or, or at all in 2020, but uh, I, I do have a specific affinity for stories of unrequited love. And I think, you know, I just love that. That's my favorite kind of movie tragedy. And this one just plays that to the hilt. Uh, the, two, the, the lead performances by Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal are just are, are really stunning and it just is just one of the, the the score of course is unforgettable and you know in the end of the film just it, it's so perfect it's just like I really love love it and it's a film that seems to almost have faded a bit in the, the culture and um, I, I still hold on to it I think it's still a good movie I don't think you're wrong but I think in some ways it's faded for the best possible reasons and that it's and there was a lot of novelty around a gay love story in 2005 that there's not I mean depiction is a, a lot uh, of those kind of relationships is a lot more common than it was, than it was then, mm-hmm. but it's, it is a great movie. I, and it's definitely, if you, if you haven't seen it, check it out. And if you have watch it again, uh, also, did you know that a lot of the, the, the sheep are CGI? <laughs> really? I did not yeah. know that a lot yeah, of sheep were CGI. A lot of CGI oh, sheep in that one. <laughs> well then, like, what was the big deal about them neglecting the sheep to like go be together? Like, why was that rancher so <laughs> mad? Like they're just CGI sheep. Yeah. That's a good, they don't that's need a good point, Tasha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I think he's exactly on the money here. I, I think that that movie is just less needed now than it was when it came out. Mm-hmm. But I also think that history will kind of come around on it to less to appreciating it for the doors that it opened and for what the way it fed people who were starving for this particular kind of meal. And eventually, mm-hmm. it'll come around to just being appreciated for the the spare performances and the just the beautifully spare cinematography. It, it's just it's one of those films that's just lush. And its nakedness almost it's so visually simple and i'm right there with you like the the ending of crouching tiger is kind of a classic that doesn't entirely satisfy me it's like so rooted in a very specific chinese culture artifact that like we just don't have the same connection with culturally in a way the ending of brokeback mountain maybe his best ending you yeah. know it's it's just it's that too yeah. perfect for the story and it's so simple and it's again just so relatable yeah, and it's got another incredible Michelle Williams performance too, mm-hmm. just like on top of everything else. But uh, yeah, interesting filmography. And I just saw Gemini Man last night for the first time. <laughs> probably, probably not going to uh, make any kind of list like this for me. But and I, I, I just, I, I don't know. He's gone off on some weird Robert Zemeckis track where he's become obsessed with technology, and uh, he seems like the last person who would get there. But Hulk was. 
an effort, you know, and there were CGI sheep and mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain. I guess there was kind of life like of Pi is life of Pi is lovely, and, and that's true. That, you know, that's true. that's that was kind of what set him on that path. Chevrolet Man is, you, you know, it sounds like a much more interesting movie. To, uh-huh. It's it's more interesting to talk about than it is to watch. And I saw it in sixty frame per second three D. Oh, which is a completely bizarre experience. Yeah, like, you know, I was writing about it. But I also, you know, I was really glad to get a chance to witness it. Uh, it, it it's 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 horrible, <laughs> but, it <laughs> is, but it is something to see for sure. It's it's it is um it's a bizarre experience. It is like the borders between you and the and the medium are kind of erased, but you, you realize you kind of want them there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's a little bit hard to tell, you know, just on a typical HD screen as I was watching mm-hmm. it last night. But it was it was immediately disconcerting to see the level of just sharpness and kind of like depth of field that were in, in some of the photography but once you got to the action sequences they were all really kind of awkward yeah see the motorcycle chase played really well that's like the one point like i'd actually like to watch that separate from the rest of the film i'd watch i'd watch that again yeah. uh, how did how did cgi will smith look um, just on Blu-ray or however you're watching it, because um, mm. in the theater he looked it looked awful. I mean, just just yeah. like embarrassing, like a demo reel. I saw it in a theater and, and conventional screening, and it looked absolutely fine to me. Like okay. not in any way standing out or uh, like looking startling or, or taking me out of the image. And that's and like I'm somebody who kind of gritted my way through the entirety of the '80s because uh, like bad matting uh, offended me so much mm. as a mm. young film viewer. I will just point out that uh, Gemini Man also very much a story about a repressed boy who desperately wants something that his duty says he can't have, and the rare only movie where he he goes for it anyway and uh, just like like drops the duty, says the the quiet part out loud, admits everything that's going on in his heart, and then goes after what he wants. And uh, it it almost, in the same sort of way, Lars von Trier's Dogville, eventually at the very end, comes to feel like a payoff for his last several films of watching women be like horribly abused and, and torn apart. Uh, Gemini Man kind of feels like a little bit of a payoff for so many repressed longing on Lee films. Just like, hey, you know what? No, this isn't working for me. I'm going to I'm gonna go do what I feel like. <laughs> so I'm glad. I'm glad we're all bringing it together. I like this. <laughs> we've got a, a grand, overarching theory of, of Angli, which I was looking for. So we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll jump forward a decade to look at more family dysfunction in Sean Durkin's 1980s set, The Nest. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going to have another fight about whether to stay in podcast therapy. I asked your mother